0: Welcome to Something Rhymes With Purple. This is a podcast. Well, you know that because you're listening to it. But if you're new to it, you won't know what it's about. It's really about words and language. And it's presented by me, Charles Brandreth, and by my friend and colleague, Susie Dent. Susie, where are you this week?
1: I would love to be sitting on top of the piano or doing something vaguely different, but I am where I have been throughout lockdown, um, at least when I talk to you, which is in my study, which is a bit of a posh name for a place with a sofa and lots of bookshelves and my desk.
0: I have to make a confession. I'm quite liking lockdown. Mm. I've been here 10, 11 weeks, pretty much isolated. I do go out every day because though I am in a category being over 70 where we're encouraged to stay at home as much as possible, I am not having to shield myself. So I've been going out every day, walking a minimum of 6,000 steps. But uh, uh, people think I'm a very gregarious human being because when I'm with them, I'm talking all the time. But actually, when I'm on my own, I'm not talking and I rather like splendid isolation.
1: Yes, you are I'm, not alone. I think a lot of people are feeling the same, combined with the anxiety of coming out of all this as well, which I think is another thing that's sort of making us want to creep back in um, inside. But People
0: I've, will be wanting to creep back in if they live near me because next week hmm. my tricycle arrives. Oh, have three wheels for me. I've got to go grow, go green in future. I, even though my car is a Tesla and therefore electric, I'm going to spend less time in the car, less time on public transport, less time on the bus and the tube, and I hope more time on my tricycle. Good. But this means it's a little bit alarming if you are living locally and you're going to be seeing me on a tricycle because I haven't ridden one, I don't think, in sixty-five years.
1: Have you got a helmet? Oh, helmet. Do you think I need a helmet? Uh, uh, jazz, if you're going to cycle around London, that is the first requisite, is to have a helmet. What about a riding hat?
0: I think I've got one of my I daughter's riding hats. Then
1: people really wear. will run away. No, get, get a proper <laughs> cycling helmet.
0: I better order that yes. before the trike arrives. Well, how are you going to be moving around once, once lockdown is over and you're free and easy again? Is it going to change your habits?
1: Um, well, I've been cycling a lot during lockdown, which has been great. So I intend to keep that up. But of course, you know, the traffic's going to intensify. So I'm not sure whether it will always be as pleasant as it is now. But I do love it. It's what is keeping me sane at the moment. But inevitably, I think it's going to be the car. So when Countdown kicks off again you know it's funny in my heart I can't wait to get back into studio but in my head I'm actually maybe or maybe it's the other way around there is a lot of anxiety about going back to work I think but then you know we all need to financially and for other reasons and I realise fully this is quite a stressful time for a lot of people but what you were saying about enjoying lockdown or at least finding it a solace in some ways I've spoken to a few comedian friends because I work with comedians obviously on the comedy version of Countdown and a lot of them have said their anxiety levels have dropped dramatically during lockdown because the the sort of performance element of it, much as they love it, is also incredibly stressful. Yeah, they don't need
0: to get any laughs
1: anymore. (laughs) No, and how stressful is that?
0: That is stressful, trying to get a laugh. Oh, my goodness. I have been taking also a break from the news and that's made me very happy indeed. I don't follow the news, but I did open the newspaper this morning and I saw a headline. It was about the world, what's happening in Russia they seem to be a bit behind us Hmm. in terms of where the coronavirus is hitting them. But the headline included two words that I wanted to talk to you about. One was the word Orwellian, Mm. and the other was the word dystopian.
1: Oh yes, And I
0: want you to explain both of those words to me. And I thought we might talk about Orwellian, because I know it is a word derived from the great writer, George Orwell. And I know we had a an email a week or so ago from Holly McBean. Yes. And she mentioned how all the talk of 1984, the Orwellian world in which we now seem to be living, had inspired her to read the novel mm-hmm. 1984, which was published, I think, in 1947 and was going to have been called 1948 but the publisher thought better of that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that got me thinking about the language of Orwell. So before we dive into George Orwell, tell me a little bit about dystopian. Because why Why is that? So what does dystopian mean?
1: Uh, well, it is. it was coined, obviously, as the opposite of utopian. Ah. Um, so the dis in there is um, something that expresses not just negative, but the sort of, you know, in some ways, it's, a place or condition in which everything is as bad as possible, as opposed to as good as possible. So it's a, a bit of Voltaire in there almost, a bit of yeah. Um for anyone who's read condes. Candide, but um, dysphemism, for example, is the opposite of euphemism. So euphemism is the, the process of making something nicer than it actually is, or, you know, couching the truth, embellishing it a little bit. Whereas disphemism is as being as rude as possible, you know, for, for the effect, for a desired effect. So if you want to, you know, tell someone to fuck off, you're probably being quite dysphemistic because you you know exactly what
0: you want to provoke. so as in euphemism the EU I think is Greek for kind or something like that yes uh, and phemism is uh, as in phonetic it means sound so it's a kindly sound so euphemism is a kindly sound euphony means sweet sounding doesn't it
1: exactly and there is a great word and I think it you'll find it in the dictionary so if anyone can hear me tapping away it's because I'm as always on the Oxford English Dictionary which is what I spend my life doing yes it is in here it's a catastrophe, you eu with that eu again of euphemism meaning good or well and obviously catastrophe and tolkien created this and it means in a fictional narrative a sudden or unexpected turn of events so it's a happy ending really which you which you say that expecting. word again what's it called catastrophe. so it's eu and then catastrophe
0: you catastrophe is a happy ending. Yes. How interesting. Yeah. So euphony, euphemism, uh, euphuism is a word too, isn't it? Euphuism. I euphuism. think that means sort of euphuism, eu, euphuism. Yeah. I think that's a kind of word play. Uh, I seem to remember when I studied Love's Labour's Lost, the play by William Shakespeare, which there's a lot of word play amongst the young people. Mm. In the court of the King of Navarre, the Princess of France, they were indulging in euphuism wordplay. Am I right? I don't
1: know. Spell it for me. Oh, I
0: love it. Everybody, you've got to know that this show (laughs) is entirely improvised. We just meet. We don't know what we're going to talk about. Uh, We don't do any preparation. It's all coming from her head. So when occasionally I find a word she's not familiar with, I have to tell you, I get just a little bit high here. Euphoric, in fact eu good. which
1: is another uh, so word for high. Tell me what, how are you spelling euphuism?
0: I'm spelling euphuism, E-U-P-H-U-I-S-M, yeah. Yeah. E- euphuism. Wow,
1: uh, you are absolutely right. Okay, so it actually goes back to a character in a 16th century work and he was called Euphi- Euphuise and euphuism is the name of a certain type of style which originated in this work and which was fashionable in literature and to the conversation of cultivated society. It's applied to high-flown language in general. So it also says periphrastic. In other words, you kind of go around the point. Affected elegance, I think, is one way of putting it. So maybe not wordplay, but I love the word.
0: Euphuism. And I think the reason that I know it is that when I was a schoolboy, there was a wonderful teacher called Mr Gardner. Mm. Uh, This is going back more than 50 years. Mr Gardner, isn't it funny? These teachers, we remember them after all these years. This great and good man who was my English teacher who taught me almost everything I know. He, I think, told me I was speaking euphuistically. I thought this was a compliment. And that's how we got into it. And clearly, I was doing high-flown, namby-pamby speech. Yes, And he said... You are speaking euphuistically. So he introduced it to me. And then he gave me an example of where it's used in a respectable way in Love's Labour's Lost, where these characters are speaking in high-flown turns of phrase. And you remember this? Of course I remember it. The joy of talking to you is we can get down, taken down so many different (laughs) cul-de-sacs, but we must stay on the main highway. Yes, sorry. We are today talking about a remarkable writer, a famous writer called... George Orwell. Yes. I I, I have been a fan of George Orwell since I first began learning about him. His real name was Eric Blair. Mm. No relation of Tony Blair, nor indeed of Tony Blair's dad, Lionel Blair. Eric Blair, (laughs) who is a famous socialist, a novelist, a journalist, a polemicist, born around this time of year in 1903, born in British India, people think of him as a, as a as a socialist thinker and writer, but in fact, he came from a very well to do family. His grandfather was a country gentleman who married um, a son of the aristocracy, the daughter of the Earl of Westmoreland. He was educated at Wellington and at Eton and he became a journalist and we remember him well, I think of him almost every week nowadays, because I work at the BBC. And when I'm, when normally, when I'm going to the BBC, I go into the One Show. And mm. the entrance to the One Show you've been, you will know Faces, a statue that was put up outside the BBC in 2017. Indeed. How do you know? Do you know the artist?
1: I do know him because, it well, not only is he a friend of a very good friend of mine, but he's also the most brilliant sculptor. He did the Betjeman, beautiful Betjeman um, statue that you'll find at St Pancras. But also he helped me with a book that I was writing once. Do you remember it was um, on tribal language, so the language of different professions? Oh, of course I do. And I spoke to um, someone at like Madame Tussauds, who was a sculptor of the dummies there. And I then spoke to Martin about his kind of tools in trade. So I do know him and I love the statue. He's got... F- a fag in hand, isn't he? In a slightly crumpled coat. I think he got some criticism for the cigarette, actually, because people said, yes. you know, he would have been horrified, Orwell. But actually Martin Jennings said, Well, I'm sorry, but he was never seen with that one, really.
0: And it's got a quotation behind it, which I can't remember accurately from memory. But it's one of the things that Orwell said about freedom of speech mm. means the freedom to be allowed to say things that people don't want to hear. Yeah. And I think that would have been Jennings' defence of putting the cigarette in his hand. Also, the freedom of actually depicting things people don't necessarily want to see. To
1: see, exactly. He believed
0: in the freedom of speech. And, of course, he introduced us to all these words that had to do with control and lack of freedom of speech. Mm. And they many of them come from his famous novel, 1984. Let's get into some of those. Big Brother. People say, or William, they mean this is a big brother world where the big brother is watching you. Did he originate that phrase?
1: No, he absolutely didn't. Um, there were oh. many before him who used that. So obviously it originally meant an elder brother and that sense goes back to 19th century at least. That's when it was first recorded. But with the capital letters, as in a person or a state that is a bit like an elder brother, so they have authority protective role, etc. That is early 19th century. It was only with Orwell that it really came to mean an authority that not just monitored people's behaviour and kind of tried to protect them through it, but actually controlled it as well. So he definitely gave it that dystopian twist.
0: Mm. In 1984 and in Animal Farm, he comes up with a number of phrases. Big brother, the thought police... That's yes. one of his, I think. Is that uh, original with him?
1: It's funny. I was looking up. I, I've got here a list from the OED. This is the one of the OED. So you can look up an author and you can look for first quotations. In other words, were these authors the first to give us a particular word or phrase in the language? Anyway, these are the ones that it will give you for Orwell. Double yep. Think. Um, which is the mental capacity to accept as equally valid two completely contrary opinions or beliefs. So in 1984, Orwell says, to know and not to know, to be conscious of complete truthfulness while telling carefully constructed lies, to hold simultaneously two opinions which cancelled out, knowing them to be contradictory and believing in them both, to use logic against logic, to repudiate morality while laying claim to it, to believe that democracy was impossible and that the party was the guardian of democracy. Isn't that wonderful? You just get a taste of him from that, really. Give us some more of these words of his. Okay, so that's double think. Newspeak. Now, I have to say for oh, a yes. very long time, I thought newspeak was newspeak. So I assumed it was mm. the, the kind of the speech and, and the written word of the mass media. But actually, it's as opposed to old speak, isn't it? It's newspeak. Yeah. But I can't help thinking that Orwell wanted that kind of ambiguity. And that was originally, in his novel anyway, the artificial language that was used for official propaganda. And then it went on to mean any corrupt form of English, um, especially as used again in political propaganda.
0: There's no doubt that language is power. This, you know, the way the phrases we use, the way we talk, defines the discourse. You only have to see pictures that sometimes emerge from North Korea, where it does seem to be an Orwellian society, where the devoted people surrounding uh, the great leader. The The young women with tears in their eyes of joy, mouthing newspeak, the language that they've been told to use to worship to deify, really. Uh, their leader. Go on. I, I, no, I was
1: just thinking I'd love to know. I'd love to have Orwell's take on this whole debate at the moment about fake news. You know, so much going on at the moment. You've got politically, obviously, you've got the whole debacle with with trips to Durham, etc. recently. You've got Trump being monitored by Twitter um, with, you know, verification checks going on. There, I mean, it's extraordinary, really. Just how insightful he was and how prescient he was. Anyway, so we've got old speak as well to go with new speak. Mm-hmm. Prol short for the, pro- proletarian. Oh, the proletarian. Yes.
0: So when we when people use slang saying, you know, oh the proles, Yes. That's a George Orwell.
1: It's, his, neologism. it's his he slang. invented that. Yeah. How interesting. Working back proles. from proletarian. Yeah. And he, this was in a letter that he wrote. He says, as to the great proletarian novel, I really don't see how it's to come into existence. The stuff in Seven Shifts, that must be one of his, is written from a prole point of view. But of course, this literature is bourgeois literature. Um, That's what he says there. Snakily, I just like that one, Snakily, in a snaky or snake-like manner, windingly. Um, So that's a nice one. Snootily, unperson. Uh, that sounds Ooh, so yes. modern. Unperson, a person who usually for a political misdemeanour is deemed not to have existence existed and whose name is removed from all public records. Later, a person whose contributions or achievements are officially denied or disregarded or a person of no political or social importance.
0: But- well, that happens nowadays. Some poor unfortunate says something on Twitter that is politically incorrect or mistaken they say it in their cups or what have you. Yeah. They suddenly become they have to delete themselves and then they come for a while, they become an unperson, a non person. They never exist.
1: You've also got people who are who seek Understandably, quite often, to kind of delete themselves from search engines because what's up there is either misleading or incredibly old. So you've actually got people trying to unperson themselves. And it reminds me of unfriend, which was first mentioned in the 17th century. I think Shakespeare used unfriend. So, you know, unfriend, unperson, they sound so modern, don't they? But they've been around for a very long time.
0: Well, I sometimes want to do it about myself. The other day on. Twitter,
1: mm. but
0: somebody had managed to find a clip of me 50 years ago doing a television interview in Wigan. Huh. Oh. Funnily enough, Wigan, one of George Orwell's books, novels, is called The Road to Wigan Pier. Yes, of course. And I am in Wigan interviewing people 50 years ago for BBC television. And I sound like, you know, Terry Thomas on Speed. <laughs> You wouldn't believe how strangled... Hello, everybody. Hello. Here we are in Wigan. This is Giles Priandras reporting for the British Broadcasting Corporation. You would not believe it. And I thought, oh, how can I unperson myself? How can I? And I wasn't... Because I, I, I'm not sophisticated enough, I didn't know how to delete this. Well, so I did. I'm, we sometimes all I'm not
1: sure you can, but um, well, there you go. That's exactly what you were trying to do. But I, I know Orwell mostly through his writing about English and his writing about language. And um, he came up with some rules, didn't he, for effective writing, which we should come to.
0: Well, Look, why don't we, before we disappear down the memory hole, why yeah. don't we take a quick break and okay. then we'll give you George Orwell's rules for English. But before we do, yeah. and I'm saying disappearing down the memory hole, because I think that was one of his, I have taken part in two different versions of Room 101. <gasps> okay. I did it many years ago with Paul Merton when he was doing it. And then more recently, I did it with Frank Skinner. It's a programme where... You have to choose what you would put into Room 101. Tell me, what is the origin of Room 101? That's an Orwellian creation, isn't it?
1: I think, I'm sure I read somewhere that his office at the BBC was actually Room 101. I think it was a torture chamber in his in, in 1984.
0: It reputedly contained the worst thing in the world. So ah. the idea of the game show is, what do you want to put in the worst thing in the world?
1: Can I ask what you put in?
0: Well, all I can remember putting in, because I've done it twice, I put Mm. in loads and loads of things. I think on one occasion I put in the Royal Variety Show, (laughs) uh, which was a big mistake. I just thought that was an amusing thing to say because it means I haven't been invited to take part in it since. So I put that in and then I thought I'd put my constituents in. I thought I'd been an MP, they didn't want me, so I thought, well, I don't want you either. Yeah, so fuck you. Into room 101. <laughs> that didn't go down too well either. There's so much of my life that I would like to unperson. Unperson, yeah. Meanwhile, I'm putting myself into room 101 now for a moment or two while we take our break. But we'll pop out of the memory hole in just a minute with George Orwell's Rules for Effective Writing. Hello, I'm Jay Rayner and I host the Out to Lunch podcast where I take fabulous guests out for lunch and grill them to a turn. For now, whilst lockdown reigns supreme, we're staying in for lunch instead, and we've got great company. Fascinating people share only the best takeaways with me over webcam. Great food and insightful conversation with the likes of Gary Neville, Sharon Horgan, George Ezra, and Dieter Von Tees.
1: If you have you ever had
0: a cream pie in the face? No. So if you, like me, enjoy food and are missing restaurants, subscribe to Out to Lunch with Jay Rayner, available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. This is Something Rhymes with Purple with Susie Dent in Oxford, me, Giles Brandreth in London, and we're looking at the lifetimes and legacy of the great George Orwell, whose real name was Eric Arthur Blair. You can tell me about his pen name in a moment, but first... You mentioned these rules for effective writing. I'm a fan of them. You're not.
1: No. I mean, that is the difference between us, isn't it? I think I am the kind of liberal hippie chick... And you are more of a stickler for rules by English. It's only because it's probably slightly prejudiced on my part, because I think I break a lot of Orwell's rules, which is why I've decided to discard them. But some of them I absolutely see the sense of. So number one was never use a metaphor, simile, or other figure of speech, which you are used to seeing in print. In other words, avoid the cliche, which I think is absolutely right. Um, Number two, never use a long word where a short one will do.
0: But I'm the sort of person who, when I was a child, I used to say that a slight inclination of the cranium is as adequate as a spasmodic movement of one optic to an equine quadruped, utterly devoid of any visionary capacity. When what I really meant was a nod is as good as a wink to a blind horse. Very good. Short and simple. Winston Churchill used to say, use the Anglo-Saxon rather than the Latinate. Although lots of people harder. have
1: taken that to mean swear words, did not they? When, in fact, most of our swear words, as we have discovered and established, aren't Anglo-Saxon anyway.
0: Did, did, do the people think that? Oh, no, they're not that. People aren't that stupid. Not the people listening to this. No,
1: though. but Anglo-Saxon is used as a, oh, as a euphemism. as a euphemism. As a euphemism
0: for a bad language. Yes. But what he's saying here is short, sharp words yes. are better than long-winded passiflage.
1: I think that's absolutely right. But then occasionally you will get a long word that packs a punch and actually manages to encompass a whole spectrum of emotions in, it may be long, but it's incredibly pithy. Does that make sense? That's uh, where I disagree with them. Uh, absolutely. Like ultra-crepidarian, as you know, one of my favourite words, somebody who loves to hold forth on the subject they know absolutely nothing about.
0: But would you put that in the opening sentence of your novel? The reason I ask that is I don't like it if I'm reading a book and I'm having to have recourse to the dictionary all the time. I yeah. want to get on with the story.
1: That put me off Dickens for, for years, actually, because I remember we had to read Our Mutual Friend at school, which I love now as a novel. But on the very first page, he used the word neophyte. I had no clue what that meant and actually put it down and didn't return to it for a little while. So, yes, I'm with you.
0: A neophyte is somebody who is new to something innocent and young. A neophyte, a newcomer.
1: That was number two. Number three, if it is possible to cut a word out, always cut it out get that too simplicity is what he's going for yeah, this one I, I don't agree with possibly because i overuse the passive tense he says never use the passive when you can use the active And i get really annoyed with spell checkers and grammar checkers online that actually try and do that for you or will give you a huge red squiggly line because you've used the passive voice but i think sometimes it's necessary and it's more beautiful where
0: are you going to be writing your novel suzy dent uh, Oh, you're working on now. No, this is not. your lockdown secret, exclusive, exclusive. <laughs> Susie Dent writing a novel.
1: No, I'd lo- love to be able to write one, but um, but why aren't you getting on with it? Because can you imagine the pressure of someone who pretends to be a wordsmith and then comes out with something sort of quite mediocre?
0: Excuse me, you it wouldn't be, wouldn't be mediocre. It would be you. I would love to. See, I'd love to read your novel. I will encourage you. I was given a wonderful opportunity when I was young. There was a publisher called Anthony Blond, distinguished publisher, who, when I left university, offered me £5 a week, quite a lot of money in those days, for two years to write a novel. Wow. And I didn't take him up on it. And he would have monitored it. He would have been my editor.
1: It's never too there you late.
0: Are. Oh, it's, no, no, I, I do write novels now. I oh, do of course you do.
1: Now. You do all your Oscar uh, Wilde Mysteries.
0: Uh, of I've course you do. I've written nine or ten novels. Yeah. Um, but, and I try, actually, I do try to follow... Um, broadly speaking Orwell's rules but you should write a novel from your heart okay and you know all Mark Twain said the secret of writing a novel Mm -mm. or writing anything application
1: apply the seat of
0: the pants to the seat of the chair sit down and get on
1: that is your golden rule you're so good at that okay next
0: week I'll ask you if you've written the first sentence what's the next of Orwell's rules
1: Number five, never use a foreign phrase, a scientific word or a jargon word if you can think of an everyday English equivalent. And a lot of people quote well on this one. When... They rally against jargon because, you know, jargon has a really, really bad rap and rightly so on a lot of occasions. But actually some of it, I think we've talked about business speak before, can be really useful. And jargon is just insider language quite often. It's when it becomes meaningless and just churned out because people think it sounds good, that it's a problem. Um, And the last one, well, actually, this is a kind of summary one. Break any of these rules sooner than say anything outright barbarous. In other words, you can just ignore number one to five if actually it helps you avoid anything that's outright barbarous. But he doesn't define outright barbarous. He doesn't say what he might put under that umbrella.
0: But he gives you that opportunity. You can decide what you want to do. But what he's making you do is think about it. Is this barbarous? You told us what barbarous means the other week, didn't you?
1: Yes so Barbara's goes back to um the Greek a uh, foreigner really so they considered all foreigners to be sort of horrible people who went around and stammered ba 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 because they couldn't understand their language so it became unintelligible chatter and, um, yeah, we talked about rhubarb, 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 didn't we? Because rhubarb was the foreign fruit, etc.
0: I want to tell regular purple people who listen to our programme regularly that I shall be monitoring the progress of Susie Dent's first novel. <laughs> before we get on to – I've mentioned our purple people – before we get on to their letters, uh, it's a pen name, isn't it, George Orwell? yes. A pen name means a name you use when you're penning something. It's an assumed name.
1: Yeah, it's an assumed name used instead of one's real name. Could be all sorts of reasons. Behind it, it could be in the past. Obviously, if you're a woman and you didn't think you'd be taken seriously, then you had a pen name, George Eliot, etc. The Brontes or indeed J.K. Rowling. I'm not sure if that was her motivation. But that is the pen name. And in French, of course, it's called nom de plume. Plume meaning feather, looking at a quill. But the idea is the same. A pen,
0: mm. and there, are there other words for pen names? I mean,
1: um, yeah, there's a, an alias. Is that a, is is an alias? You wouldn't really call it an alias, would you? But- that's simply that's from the Latin meaning at another time or otherwise. Non de guerre. Nom de, de guerre, as in non de plume, nom de guerre. Yes, a war name. So this one was used originally of people who were perhaps spies or they were working undercover. So it was your your name during military action. It wasn't your When you would
0: one. be traveling possibly incognito.
1: Incognito, absolutely right. That simply means unknown.
0: What about a moniker? His moniker was. Yeah, wars? we don't
1: know where that one comes from. I love moniker. Sobriquet? Subriquet, thats another one where we're not completely sure. We know it comes from French. It's usually with slightly garbled as soubriquet, but it's actually sobriquet, as you say. And some people think it comes from a French dialect term meaning a tickle under the chin. But what that Ooh. has to do with your nickname? I'm not. Maybe it was a sort of you know a sort of gesture of affection, and so nickname is quite often bestowed through affection. Let's get on
0: to the purple people. Before we do, we have to do George Orwell's Naudeger. Oh, you mentioned nickname. What's, who gets, yes, what's nicknames nickname, a brilliant nickname.
1: one. So, nickname. Do you remember me talking to you uh, quite a while ago now about a linguistic process called metanalysis? And this is when we kind of falsely divide a word. I told you about an adder, which was originally nada, nadder, n a d d e r, because but because we said an nadder, the sort of n migrated to the a, and we got adder instead. Same with a newt. A newt used to be a you. E-W-T is from Anglo-Saxon, but we called it anewt. And so the N kind of travelled over to the Ute bit. Well, it's the same with a nickname because a nickname was originally an eek name, E-K-E, meaning supplementary as well. So it was a, a sort of additional name, really. But a nickname became a nickname in the end.
0: Brilliant. Well, from nicknamed Nord de Plume to Monica de sobriquet to Nord de Guerre, the alias of George Orwell uh, was an alias of Elick Arthur Blair, who chose that name because when he wrote Down and Out in Paris and London, it spoke of, well, tales of poverty in his own life, didn't want to embarrass his upper middle class family, so he changed it. He chose Orwell after the River Orwell in Suffolk that he was particularly fond of. Right. Ah. The purple people can put us right on so much. What have they been putting us right on this week or what have they been writing to us about? Because we talked about Orwell entirely because Holly McBean or Holly McBain wrote to us about George Orwell. Um, Who's been writing to us this week?
1: Well, we have some questions, but we also have some comments. We have quite a few sausage poems. Uh, Do you remember this? In our episode called Yakamosh, and I didn't know how to pronounce that, but we were talking about the world's most beautiful languages and most beautiful words. We asked people to send us our saucy sausage poems or tongue twisters. Uh, Well... Lots of people did, Giles. Lots of the purple people, and they're absolutely brilliant. Now, have you got those in front of you?
0: I have got a couple of them. Okay. Uh, I'll give you one from Kevin Laurie. Okay. A couple were furky toodling with a saucy sausage (laughs) or two. She said, we shouldn't be doing this. He replied, I know, after you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Shall I remind everyone what furky-toodling was, just so they get the full picture? To furky-toodle is to kind of kiss and fondle in, in my grandparents' terms and it's foreplay, basically, just to to mess about. You give us, have you got the one there from Kevin Ryan? Kevin Ryan from Huntingdon goes with Susie Dent and Giles Brandreth hardly caught a breath. They spoke of foreplay. There you go. A saucy message, but not as naughty as calling Susie a very saucy sausage.
0: <laughs> That's very sweet. It's got a <laughs> little tongue twister feel to it. it and this certainly does. A couple of people, including Susan Kirkpatrick, offered this tongue twister that apparently was popular in French classrooms in the 1960s. Si, si, saucisson, saucisson. Si, si, saucisson, saucisson, I get it now. I'll repeat that at the very end. Of, stay tuned to the end of the podcast <laughs> because we're running out of time and I think we've got to get your three words in and then I will practice uh saying this properly so we can end today with my quotation of the week will be a correct rendering of that wonderful french classroom tongue twister
1: okay do you want my trio give us Give give you my trio okay um a couple of these i think i've done before but you know me i tend to just do whatever's at the top of my mind at the moment because it kind of fits with my current situation and the first of those is angel visit it's a catch up with a friend that's all too rare. In other words, it's oh. one that doesn't happen very often. That's an angel visit. Lovely. Um, and um, just again, we've talked about you know truth and falsehood and everything being in the news a lot at the, at the moment. A pseudologizer—you can guess this one. Ooh. Pseudologizer is a synonym for a liar. And the dictionary has lots of them, from leasing, munger, to a falsificator, a wrinkler, a gabber. There's so many. But a pseudologizer or a pseudologist is essentially someone who bends the truth. And I will end with someone that's a little bit nicer than that. Kind of ties into our beautiful language um, pod, actually. And that's a sun wake, sun wake, which is the reflection of the sunrise or the sunset on the surface of the sea. That is the sun wake.
0: I love it. The sun wig. It's beautiful, isn't it? There's been lots of apricity recently, hasn't there?
1: Oh, there has. Although it's just getting hotter and hotter, isn't it? So not, not so much the chilly, lots of the sunshine.
0: Oh, I thought apricity was the warmth of the sun on your back.
1: It is, but it's usually on a chilly day. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes, but you are oh. apricating at the moment. So there's a linked word, which is to bask in the sunshine. You are apricating.
0: I love a bit of mm, me too. And I love you, Susie Dent, and I'll be Aww. with you again this time next week. And if you want to be with us and to take part in the conversation, you can tweet us or email us at purple at something That's something without a G. Purple at somethingelse.com. I'm going to conclude by giving you this French classroom tongue twister from Excellent. the 1960s. Si, si saucisson son 600 saucissons sont 600 cents. A oui, oh, oh. la prochaine. Salut les copains. Au revoir, Suzy.
1: Au revoir, mon ami. Something Rhymes with Purple is a something else production. It was produced by Lawrence Bassett with additional production from Steve Ackerman, Grace Laker, Jay, who's looking on today, and Gully. Oh, Gully, quel saucisson!